And would you please open your Bibles to Job chapter 11. If you're new or visiting with us, we've been making our way through the book of Job over the last couple of weeks. And um, oh, and just, yeah, there's an announcement that there's no corner pebble on today, but there is a crash just off to the side if you need it. And there's Robin's in there. She's waving her arms. More than happy to take them there. And um, you can also hear the service while you're in there. Um, God's word truly is precious. And, uh, and I hope and I pray that today you see how precious it is as we make our way through, um, I think, a, a chapter of the Bible, which I'm pretty sure will be unfamiliar to most of us. Um, but there are treasures, can I just say, within God's word always. And uh, I hope that today, by God's grace, you see, most of all, the Lord Jesus even more clearly. But as we read these words, too, we have to remember that they're wrong. Um, they're the inspired speech of someone that is thinking and spouting wrong thoughts about God. So we need extra wisdom. We need extra discernment as we read these words. So before I read them, I'm going to lead us in prayer and ask for God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, it's full of joy that we come because you are merciful to sinners. People like us. Lord, people who are undeserving of your grace. And so, Father, we pray that as we read your word now, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. Most of all, Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus. We would see him high and exalted and lifted up. Lord, bless us and bless this time. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Zophar, the Naamanite, uh, replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, My beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgiven some of your sin. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceivers. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? But the witless can no more become wise than a wild's donkey's colt can be born a human being. Yet, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it 
only as water's gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure, because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favour. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. You've probably all read or heard, I hope, Philip Jensen's fantastic and famous evangelistic tract, Two Ways to Live. It's an excellent presentation of the gospel, which has been used extensively throughout Australia, but especially, I think, around Sydney for the past 30 years. And it shows how just like in Psalm 1, we can either live for ourselves, with ourselves being the king or the queen, the ruler or boss of our lives, or we can submit to Jesus as our saviour and Lord, and so live. If you don't know what I'm referring to, then I'd definitely recommend looking it up sometime because it really is a fantastic gospel tract. It's a very clear and compelling presentation of the gospel. Tim Keller, Keller, though, has tweaked um, a bit that approach, probably not deliberately, and he said that there are not two, but there's actually three ways to live. Not only do we need to repent of our irreligion or our rebelliousness or our lawlessness, but Keller rightly says that we also need to repent of our self-righteousness, of our religiosity, or in particular, our legalism. Keller explains it like this. He says, in religion, people may look to God as their helper, teacher, and example, but their moral performance is serving as their saviour. Both religious and irreligious people are avoiding God as saviour and Lord. Both are seeking to keep control of their own lives by looking to something besides God as their salvation. Keller says religious legalism, moralism, and secular irreligious relativism are just two different strategies of the same problem, and that is self-salvation. It's a great point because it's a trap which is really, really easy to fall into, especially if you've been a believer for any length of time, because it's really easy to fall into or fall prey into the spiritual danger of pride and especially relying on your own religious performance or works. If you read your Bible and pray regularly, you're constantly at church and growth group during the week, or you serve uh, sacrificially and generously at church and help out in all kinds of practical ways when you're growing in sanctification. And you start to see how your life is changing from what you were to what you are now, particularly in relation to other people. That you have made wise choices, whereas they have made foolish ones. And most of all, and this is, I think, really where a trap really lies, when you have gained a deeper and deeper knowledge of God's word, and you are more and more correct and orthodox in your theology, 
there's a great danger of pride coming in, isn't there? Put all of this together and it's very easy to just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day to become legalistic, to rely on your own works rather than the work of Christ. Now we come this week to Zophar's first speech. He holds to exactly to the same kind of what we've been seeing is referred to as transactional theology as Job's other two friends. But he's also unique as well. Transactional uh, theology, if you still haven't grasped it, is simply this. It's a transaction. It's that that God will always reward good behavior and that he will always punish bad ones. So you get what you deserve. There's a transaction takes place. If you're good, you get good things. If you're bad, you will always get bad things. But as we've been seeing, that's not always the case. Eliphaz relied on experience as his authority. Remember, he was the one, if you still have your Bibles open, have a look back to verses 12 to 16 of chapter 4. Each friend has a different authority that they refer to to prove that their view of transactional theology is correct. Verse 12 of chapter 4, A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. Eliphaz says, A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. This extraordinary, mystical experience would have really made whatever he went on to say next quite compelling, wouldn't it? Because it has supernatural overtones that would make anyone sit up and listen. Who wouldn't want some kind of experience like this? But as we learn from the final chapter of the book, the message which this ghost or spirit tells him was not from the Lord but was more in line with the devil. Bildad, though, relied not on experience, but on human tradition. This is the second friend. Verses 8 to 10 of chapter 8. He says this, starting at verse 8. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? In other words, how can you go against the teaching of so many learned and respected individuals from the past? Sacred tradition is what Bildad relies upon. And more than a few Christian denominations have fallen into this trap as well. Bildad says, you're just one man. Tradition can be a very, very powerful way of arguing. It was how the Pharisees used to argue. Because no one wants to go it alone, especially when our belief or way of thinking might be, well, so unpopular. The theologian Athanasius lived in a time uh, in church history, in the early church in particular, when 
most people held to a false understanding of the Trinity called Arianism. And Arius, through his songs, almost persuaded the entire Christian church to go along with his heresy. That Jesus wasn't the eternal Son of God, but that Jesus was brought into being at a particular point in time. That's Arianism. It's also, but can I say, the fault of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Athanasius, though, stood up for the Bible and its truth, and it cost him dearly. He was ostracized by most in his day. He was rejected and he was shunned. And at one particular point, when it looked like all was lost at a particular church council, when all the churches met together to try and discern what the Word of God said, somebody said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And his reply was famously in Latin, contramundum, which was Latin for Athanasius saying, then I am against the world. Athanasius knew that he had to make a stand for what he knew from God's word was right, then to cave into popular opinion of the day, contra mundum. And he changed the course of history. And so tradition, no matter how venerable it is, always has to submit to the authority of God's word. A billion blowflies can be wrong. In contrast to these two figures then is Zophar. And his functional authority is not experience, it's not tradition, it's logic. Or as we'll see this morning, his own human reasoning and understanding. I refer to him as Zophar the Zealot, though, because he is white hot in his zeal. He doesn't mess around with niceties or flattery like Eliphaz does or Bildad might um, possibly do. Zophar goes straight for the jugular because Zophar is quite simply a legalist. Each of Job's friends, I think, are guilty of this particular sin because in keeping with their transactional view of God, their entire theology is based upon their own performance. If you're good, you'll always be rewarded. But if you're bad, you will always be punished. Can I just say, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, particularly from Psalm 73, that is just not the case. As we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, it's actually the underlying spirit of legalism. For it has no room in its thinking, as Ben pointed us to before, of a mediator. And especially it has no room for a righteous or pure man who might suffer in our place. And we see this kind of legalistic spirit manifested in Zophar's speech in three distinct ways. The first is in verses 1 to 6, and you see it by the complete absence of love. Like Job's other two friends, Zophar begins his speech by just personally unleashing on Job. Such is his contempt in him, actually. He doesn't even directly address him, but he refers to him in the third person, even in his presence. Verse 2, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? It's incredibly rude to do this, especially when the person that you're talking about is in your presence. 
But initially, Zophar won't even address Job directly. That's how little love he has for him. Instead, Zophar is so incensed that Job has successfully defended himself against the accusations of his friends and that they haven't been able to, note this, put him to shame. Because that's what he really wants. That's what all legalists want. As someone who has succumbed to the temptation of legalism, Zophar's goal is that Job is condemned and publicly proven to be so. And that alternatively, the opinion of he and his two friends is vindicated. That's legalism. That's always the way of the legalist. Just take a look at what he says in verse 2. It's always a good idea, uh, particularly when you're reading through Job, to read a couple of different translations of the Bible because the more literal versions, such as the ESV, are more accurate or precise, even if they tend to be, when you read them, a bit wooden. The NIV says it like this, Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? The ESV, though, says this, Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? That is the spirit of legalism. Because there is a complete and utter absence of love. Zophar says that the cries of his friend who is suffering, and remember, he's suffering intensely. He's lost all of his children. He's lost all of his wealth. And he basically has one foot himself in the grave. And all Zophar can say is that your words are like the confused gibberish which was spoken as a result of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel. It's just babble. And not only that, what troubles him most is that Job hasn't been put to shame. There is no thought or desire to comfort his friend who is suffering. He only wants to be proven right. What's more, just like Eliphaz and Bildad were both guilty of doing, Zophar also misrepresents Job's words. He sets up a straw man argument, which is really easy to knock down. And he makes the claim, he makes actually Job claim more, infinitely more than Job ever did. See, in verse 4, he says, You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. But you know, Job has never said this about himself. Not once. It was the Lord who said about Job at the opening verse of the entire book that Job was blameless and upright, which basically means that he was a man of integrity or godliness. But it's another thing altogether to say that Job claimed or believed that he was sinless. Blameless and upright, sure. But that's not the same thing as saying that someone is pure or faultless or without sin. Because as Job himself acknowledges repeatedly throughout the book, no one on earth is himself included. But the real kick in the teeth, so to speak, comes in verse 6. 
For Zophar foolishly says in the words which will later come back to haunt him in ways that he could never have imagined, Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for, two, for wisdom has two sides. Oh, my word. The pride here. Oh, if only God could show you the wisdom. I see both sides of it. You see nothing. He has no idea what he is saying. Because in his legalism and pride, he cannot even possibly conceive that any of this might actually be applicable to himself. And at the end of the day, that God will say to Job, Job has spoken rightly about myself, but none of you have. In fact, it's been so bad, Job will have to make atonement for you. They've sinned against the Lord in what they've said because they've misrepresented the Lord, you see? But then to top it all off, as if all of that is not bad enough, he says at the end of verse 6, or the NIV says this, know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Once again, the King James or the ESV translations are more reliable here for they convey better the complete lack of love which Zophar has for his friend. They translate verse 6 as saying this, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Isn't that shocking? We might have thought that Bildad was brutal when he said that his children deserved to die. Didn't they get what they deserved when they died, when the house fell on them? Saying to a man who's lost his whole family, didn't they deserve it? God was only doing what was just. Zophar goes further and he says, you deceive even worse than what you're currently receiving. You're getting off lightly. That's always the reasoning of a legalist. They don't care about the person. They only care about winning the point. They only care about being correct and being proven to be correct in their own understanding. And as a result, there is a complete and total lack of love. Following on from this, the second thing we learn from Zophar's speech is that legalism has no place for God's mercy. You see, in verses 7 to 9, Zophar constructs this, if I can put it like this, this zinger of a poem. And it's filled, I've got to admit, with these sublime and profound theological truths about God. In fact, I think if we hadn't have prayed before the sermon, or if I hadn't have told you these were from Zophar, you would have gone, this is a pretty good, pretty good chapter. That someone like God is in his divine being is too high, too deep, too long, too wide to grasp. That's true, isn't it? But their thoughts, which while being theologically correct, are so horribly mistaken to Job's situation that God says atonement will have to be made for them. That he's sinning against Job, but more than that, these words are sinning against God. So much so that they're actually the complete opposite to what Zophar should have said to Job. 
You see, Zophar rightly says in verses 7 to 9 that God is higher than the highest place imaginable, namely heaven. He's also right that God is deeper than the deepest place on earth, Sheol or the grave. God's deeper than that. Or that God is longer than the longest place, that is the earth. There's nowhere on earth you can go where you won't find the Lord's present. He's also completely correct to say that God is wider than the widest place, that is the sea. That's all true. But then he makes his fatal, logical, legalistic misstep in verses 11 to 12. All the way along, he's been relying on his own wisdom, his own logic, his own reason, his own understanding. But it's about to make him completely come undone. Verse 11, he says, Surely he recognizes deceitful men, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? But a witless or stupid man, a sinner that is, can no more become wise or get understanding than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. The problem with everything that Zophar is saying is not only is he himself guilty of error, as we'll see in just a moment, but in Zophar's understanding of God, and of how God relates to us as his fallen creatures, there's no place for God's mercy. As a legalist, there's only justice. And justice ends in judgment. But there's no mercy. Which means that in the end, he ends up being saying the complete opposite to what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says in Romans chapter 8. Remember that, how last week we saw how Job rightly perceived that what he most needed, most of all at the end of chapter 9, was what? A mediator. Someone who would intercede for, for us before God on our behalf. Someone who could represent God and us and come in between. Somebody who, you've got to remember, this is Job saying this something like 3,000 plus years ago. Somebody who was maybe both God and man. Well, as Christians, we obviously realize that that's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this. <laughs> Think of this in response to Zophar's speech. <coughs> who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's not accusing. He's interceding for us. And then he says, what shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? No, none of those things can. Zophar's response, or response to what Job says in the end of chapter 9 is, you don't know, Zophar says, just how separate you are to God. God's up here. You're down here. The reason he says that is because he's a legalist. It's because he believes that our relationship with God is based completely, solely, utterly on our own performance. What the gospel teaches us, though, is the opposite. The gospel doesn't, the legalists say, don't you realize how separate we are to God and how much we have to do? The gospel says, is, don't you realize that in Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God? That is in Christ. Nothing. 
Paul says, if something were to happen to us in a similar situation to what happened to Job, how should we understand that situation? Sickness, loss, trial, tragedy. Paul says this, knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons or satans, neither the present nor the future, nor the, any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. Or the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. How completely different that view of God is compared to what Zophar the legalist believes. Zophar thinks that no one can become wise or no one, one can no more become wise than a person, a human being, be born as the offspring of a donkey. But the gospel teaches us that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God that you and I can become wise. That faith in Jesus, that through faith in Jesus, we who were as foolish as donkeys, <laughs> that's our saying, isn't it? If someone's being a real dummy, <laughs> you're a donkey. We who are as foolish as donkeys have become so wise that we can be called sons and daughters of God. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. That's the gospel. And it's the cure to legalism. Zophar only perceives how separate we are to God, whereas the gospel reveals that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because those who believe in Jesus have received the mediator between God and man that Job longed to see. And it would be thousands of years before he saw it. We have one who intercedes for us constantly and is an advocate from legalists like Zophar who would only seek to shame and condemn. People who, like the Satan, constantly go around the earth stirring up trouble, looking for someone to accuse. All of which means no matter what happens to us in this life, no one can separate us from Christ's mercy. No one. Nothing. For rather than being condemned, what does Paul say? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the opposite of condemnation. The reason why Paul can say all this is because he'd come to know firsthand just how gracious God is. There's probably been no greater legalist in the history of the church than the Apostle Paul. He described himself, remember in Philippians 3, as being a Pharisee of Pharisees. Circumcised on the eighth day, religious pedigree, faultless. Remember he, the Bible reading we had earlier from Philippians 3. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, this is the legalist. I have more. You've got nothing. 
My blanket's bigger than yours. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Job never claimed or boasted in this kind of works righteousness. But Paul did. And he said that his legalistic performance was faultless. That not only, he wasn't just blameless or upright, as the Lord said of Job. Paul's claiming much more than that. Paul's claiming in his pride and his legalism to be pure, flawless, without spot. And yet, after Paul encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, his whole way of relating to God was completely turned upside down. Isn't there something very significant and symbolic that God makes him go blind for three days? That as Jesus was three days in the grave, Paul is blind for three days, and then after three days, he receives back his sight, and then he can see. It's like he's been resurrected while still alive. He came to see that he was a sinner and that he needed a saviour and that there was no way he could ever save himself. He was brought to the foot of the cross where he had to repent, not simply of his rebellion, but of his religion. One of the former principals of Moore College, Broughton Knox, used to say this as a very simple, pithy statement to all of this. Religion is rebellion. Religion is rebellion. And you might go, wait wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm in church. I'm doing a religious thing. No, you're not. Hopefully you're not. Hopefully you're not looking to your own righteousness right now, but you're looking to the righteousness of Christ. That's not religion. That's the gospel. That's relationship. Paul says in Philippians 3, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. All the things I formerly boast in, nothing. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You can only boast in one of two things, friends. Today, as you're sitting there, you can only boast either in your own righteousness, by your own legalistic human performance, or you can be trusting in the righteousness of Christ. But you cannot do both. It will either be always one or the other. You see the difference? Legalism has no understanding of God's mercy. It's always do and do and do and do. And you can never do enough. That's why you're so disappointed or proud, as the case may be, when you see others not matching up to your, well, quite pathetic standard. Because in relation to God, His righteousness is perfect. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ, the righteous and sinless one and only one, has suffered in our place. Do you see? Or as we heard last Easter from Yako, 
It's summarized in one word, isn't it? Tetelestai. It is finished. There's nothing more to be done. The price has been paid. Our sins have been covered. And we who were no better than dumb donkeys are now beloved sons and daughters of God. Isn't that incredible? We who were witless and stupid have truly become righteous and wise if you trust in Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what's happened. When you trust in Jesus, you go from being a donkey to being wise. And the reason why we're wise, brothers and sisters, is because we have come to know, this is the last thing, the mercy of God. That like Paul, we have received a righteousness, not of our own, that comes from the law, but that is from God and is by faith. So either works righteousness, legalism by law, or looking at what Jesus has done by faith, trusting that he took your punishment on the cross for your sin. Because here's the key. We have put our trust in what Jesus has done rather than what we could never do for ourselves. Religion says do. The gospel says done. The reason why legalism is so loveless is this. Because it fails to receive the love which God first has for us. If you don't know God's love for you, that it's infinitely more than you could ever love somebody else, you'll never have the resources to love anyone because they'll never meet your standard. Or maybe like Amy, you'll have so many badges that you'll just feel intimidated by them. And as such, it really falls into the error of putting the proverbial cart before the horse. It tries to live a life which is pleasing to God on the basis of our own effort or religious performance. The reason why that way of thinking is so mistaken is it's forgotten the fundamental truth of what John writes in 1 John 4.19. Here's a memory verse. 1 John 4.19. We love because God first loved us. You don't love so that God will love you. You don't love to become lovely. You love simply because you were first loved. That's why John goes on to say, if we say we love God but hate our brother and sister in Christ, we're a liar. Because the sign that you've received God's love in Jesus is manifested in how you relate to others. If you're not loving other people, it just simply shows that you haven't received love. Because love is what should characterize you. It should overflow from you now. Because you've been loved infinitely more than you could ever imagine. Every single one of your sins has been forgiven. For the legalist, though, it's always about themselves. Because legalism has no place for grace. Just like Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar tries to shame Job into repentance. There's no love or encouragement to trust in God's mercy. But you know what Zophar does in the end? Zophar becomes a mouthpiece for the devil. 
Why do I say that? Because the logic of his reasoning is precisely the same logic as the devil's reasoning in chapters 1 and 2. And the fact that this will sound so scarily similar to things that you might have heard yourself or maybe even said shows just how deceptive it is. Christopher Ashe, in his superb commentary on the book of Job, which you've all already purchased, right, puts it like this. He writes, The motivation Zophar gives to Job for repentance is precisely the motivation of Satan's original accusation. The Satan thinks that Job has only been pious in order that his piety will win him prosperity. And so if Job repents in order to regain these blessings, he will prove that the Satan is right. That's exactly how legalism thinks. That's exactly how legalism works. The Lord God Almighty is really, at the end of the day, in legalism, my own personal genie. And he might be great, he might be powerful, he might be high and deep and wide and long, he might be all of those things, but to the legalist, it's this. If I rub his lamp, he has to do what I say. If I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray, then I'll be very disappointed, genie, unless you come out of that bottle and you do exactly what I say. Because whenever I rub my lamp, Jeannie, you've got to come and you've got to do whatever I wish. That's precisely how transactional theology works. Or I should say, it doesn't work. Because God's not your slave. He's not my slave. If I can put it like this, that's like getting God literally spelt backwards. It's turning God into a dog. Come and do my bidding whenever I want. This kind of thinking is, well, quite frankly, it's blasphemous. Because we make God our slave. And we become, as if he should say to us, yes, master, what? What would you like me to do for you today? So far says in verses 13 to 15, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame and you will stand firm and without fear. That's legalism. Because legalism has no place for grace. It's always about being more devoted, more prayerful, more sincere, more religious, doing more and more and more and more because it's all about you. There is no understanding of forgiveness. There is no understanding of God's mercy. There is no understanding of God's love because there is no understanding of grace. There's no room for a blameless man to be rejected and pay the price for your sin. In short, there's no room for a saviour. There's no room for a righteous and pure one who suffers in our place. You see how dangerous and destructive and false a spirit of legalism is to our souls? It will destroy you. Religion is rebellion. Because it promotes a completely different way to be saved. In fact, why religion is so wrong is because it means that you're the saviour, not Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. That's a great example for me to follow. I will do likewise and save myself. How patronising. 
In conclusion, are you trusting in Jesus or relying on your own performance? Do you need to repent of being religious? That sounds like a strange thing to say, I know, especially to people who regularly come to church. But the gospel is not just for sinners, it's also for the self-righteous. Which ironically, in particular, is a form of sin, isn't it? And if you're feeling convicted about your pride, though, then let me encourage you. Christ has paid for that, especially that too. (laughs) I'll praise him. Christ's death has paid the price for all sin. None of us have sinned so greatly as to be beyond the reach of God's love and mercy and grace. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. John Stott used to say, this is the only passage in the New Testament where he thinks the Apostle Paul is wrong. He says, Paul is not the worst of sinners, I am. And he understands what Paul's saying are right. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy that so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly and powerfully through your word this morning. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it humbles us, it slays us, and it slays particularly our self-righteousness and our pride. Lord, we um, thank you for this clear gospel word that we've heard this morning. We repent and we're sorry, Lord, for the pride and the self-righteousness that continues to battle against our souls, that could ever think of ourselves as worthy, worthy of your forgiveness, worthy of your acceptance. Lord, as you've convicted us, though, may we not feel or stay condemned but may we be healed may we be comforted knowing that jesus has paid it all thank you for your great love thank you for your great mercy thank you for your great grace and may this be ringing in our hearts and in our ears this week and for the rest of our lives in jesus name amen